so he was engaged to Maria Wont von Wedemeyer um, on January 17, 1943. Engaged in January, and in April of the same year, he was arrested. Arrested and jailed. Before he had started his time in prison, he had founded a seminary. He had written several books. And then three weeks before Hitler took his own life, he, one of the last things he ordered to be done was to have um, this man hung in the prison that he had been contained in for the last two years. He dies before he ever gets to marry his bride, Maria. He dies in the age of, I think, of 39. And yet, um, the camp doctor who witnessed his death wrote about it. Um, and, and I just want to read his account. He said, on the morning of that day, between 5 and 6 o'clock, the prisoner was taken from his cell, and the verdict of the court-martial read to him. Um, through the half-open door in one of the rooms of the huts, I saw him before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of his execution, he again said a prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. In the almost 50 years that I've worked as a doctor, I've hardly seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. If you haven't guessed already, the man was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he faced the hardest thing we could think about facing, the execution uh, by hanging, right, with peace, with peace in his heart. And while we may not ever have to deal with that in our own lives, we can all agree that life is hard. Life is full of disappointments. He never got to marry the woman that he loved, right? Young man, life taken away. One of the last things, that the war was over and Hitler just wanted to make sure his life was taken before he took his own life. Being a parent is hard. I saw Sam posting, he's got a teenager now. Being a parent is hard, right? I think about my own kids. Um, Work is challenging, difficult. Families are hard. Marriages are hard. Um, the sicknesses we face, whether they're temporary or more long-term, life is hard. And yet, if you're a Christian, you have reason to hope. We have reason to hope like Bonhoeffer. We have reason to hope um, and live in the midst of challenges with joy. And this morning's text shows us how. It shows us how to do that, and it shows us why, and then it shows us what we could even do in the midst of trials. And so we're going to look at three things this morning. Why we share, which is directly tied to why we hope. And then we're going to look at who we share with, and then lastly, how we share. And so listen now uh, to a reading of God's words. We're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, and the words are on the screen as well. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, 
to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. This is God's word and all God's people say. So we begin with why we share. Now the passage begins with this huge revelation. We're 45 verses into this letter that he's written, and all of a sudden he just drops, oh, by the way, I'm in jail. I've been writing to you from prison. And we know from a couple of months ago when we went through the book of Acts how this happened, right? He went to Jerusalem, and he brought actually a man from Ephesus, Trophimus. He's accused of defiling the temple with, an, with a Gentile, and he's brought into the square. The Jews that have been following him throughout Asia have come to Jerusalem, and they've seen him in the temple, and they say, this is that guy that caused all the trouble in the synagogues. He needs to be arrested. And so he's arrested, and remember, he makes this long journey that results in him being imprisoned in Rome. And that's where he's writing this letter from. And we have to think about the circumstances Paul finds himself in, right? This was a a well-respected rabbi, a leader in the synagogue, right? And he's turned on by his own people. He finds himself in jail, right? He's falsely accused. He's in chains. And he writes four letters, we know. And we know he writes Philippians and Ephesians in the same imprisonment. And we know from Philippians, right, that some of the people in the churches he ministered to are taking advantage of the fact that he's in jail. And one commentator had a really interesting thing to say. He said, you know, people are preaching Christ out of envy, right? They're jealous that Paul has gotten so much attention for his preaching. And so what are they doing? He says, he surmises, maybe these people are going out. Now they're preaching boldly. Christ is king. The Romans come up to him because no one wants to hear that Christ is king over Caesar, right? And when they say, you know, where are you teaching? Who taught you this? They're like, oh, Paul, that guy that you got arrested, Paul's teaching that. He's the leader of our movement. And so here they are taking advantage of him being out of the limelight, and he's still getting the, the, the brunt of the, the persecution as they're preaching the gospel. So this was a miserable, difficult time in Paul's life. And yet, he's writing this joyful letter. Remember those 11 verses, right? Blessed be God, our Father, right, who's given us every heavenly blessing. He's joyful. He's effusive. And our modern culture is no less, uh, you know, enraptured by the idea of prison, right? Two weeks ago, Felicity Huffman spent two weeks in jail, and it was all over the news. She's wearing the same jumpsuit, the shame of being in prison, the difficulties and how unpleasant prison is, right? Lester Holt a couple of weeks ago did a a special where he was in Angola prison for a couple of nights. And he wrote about how miserable the conditions were, food being slipped through a a hole in the the door, solitary confinement, right, metal and and coldness, right? And yet we see that Paul here is, is effusive. He's filled with joy, turned on by his own people, yet he has hope. He might die, yet he's rejoicing. And the question is why? And he tells us, he tells us in verse 3, he says, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, 
members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What enables Paul to experience joy in prison in the humiliation of being in chains and being rejected by his own people? Paul met Jesus. He says, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, right? Well, the revelation was his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. He met the one that was crucified and died and rose again. He met face to face with God himself, and it changed everything. Remember when we talked about that event in his life, he's on the way to Damascus. He's chosen by the other Jewish leaders to complete this mission, to arrest Jews, and why is he going to arrest them, right? Well, Paul, like all the good Pharisees, was awaiting the arrival of the Messiah. And yet, his people were still in exile. They were under Roman control. And why did God's people get sent into exile in the first place? For their sins, for, for sinning against God. And so what does Paul see? Paul sees his own people starting to worship a false god, this guy, Jesus, that claims to be God, this heresy. And maybe that's why they're still under Roman rule. And so he's got passion. He wants to go and get these people and bring them back. And then he meets Jesus. And in a moment, all of his life is transformed. He's changed in an instant. One writer says this, right? The moment shattered Saul's wildest dreams and at the same split second fulfilled them. This was the fulfillment of the ancient scriptures, but also the denial of how he had been reading them up to this point. God had raised Jesus from the dead, declaring not only that he was the Messiah, but that he had done what the one true God had promised to do himself. So think about Paul on this road, a young, smart, up-and-coming rabbi, accomplished, successful, and in a moment, his whole life is reoriented when he comes face to face with Christ. If you think back on your own life when you realized who Jesus was, how much he loved you, when you encountered Christ personally, was your whole life reoriented and changed as a result? Paul is clearly weighed down by the pressures of being righteous, right? Remember, he's going noon when no one worked. He's on his way, right? And Jesus confronts him and says, no, the law was never going to save you. It never will. And his ambition, his story, the story that Paul was living out is confronted by somebody greater than himself. When Paul meets Jesus, he finally knows who he is for the first time. And we see it in the language here. One scholar noted out what he says, right? He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ. He doesn't say he's a prisoner of Rome because Paul knows who he belongs to. Paul knows who he is. He knows he belongs to Jesus. Do you know that you belong to Jesus? Not about him, not what he did for sinners, but you, what he did for your sins, how much he loves you. You know, you might be saying, well, I'm not like Paul. I didn't see him on the road. It would have been different. It's not true. All sorts of people have powerful experiences and they fade. But somebody who's really encountered Christ, who's really known him, 
He's revealed himself to you. That doesn't fade over time. It doesn't change. We have 2,000 years of people who say they've met Jesus. They've met him, and it's changed their lives. Bonhoeffer never met Jesus face to face, yet he knew he was Christ's, and he was able to face death as a result. So do you know who you belong to? The other thing we need to see here in terms of why Paul's able to share, why he encountered Christ, we've encountered Christ. But the second thing is he comes face to face with new creation in seeing the resurrected Jesus. Remember, all the Jews believed that there was going to be one day where God raised up all of his righteous people in one moment, and yet he upended things because God raised Jesus first. And Paul will write about this, the first fruits of the new creation, Jesus, right? And this is not like when Jesus raised Lazarus, taking a man that was dead and bringing him back to life. This is a new body, a glorified, resurrected body that Paul sees face to face. What, what Peter gets a glimpse of with John on the mountain, Paul sees face to face. And this ignites his heart. It changes Paul. And it shapes all of his letters. You see it shape all of his letters. This week, um, I've been here, you know, five years now. There's a particular tree that I've come to love on the drive to church and the drive to Westminster. It's, it's on the, the path of the uh, golf club not far from our house. And it's just a spectacular tree that just changes the most wonderful colors. And this year, because of the wind and because of the rain, I didn't get to see the tree change. It went from green to bare. And I was so saddened by it this year. I was like really struck by how much it made me sad because there's this beauty that I want to be there all year round. And I only get maybe three or four days of it, but it was taken from me. My kids have been sick for the past two weeks. Uh, Friday, I think I got, finally got what we've been fighting off for them for two weeks. And just the misery of not feeling well. Even if it's just a cold, right? Your voice, you're aching, you're tired. I long for the body that we're promised as believers. I long for the permanence of the beauty that we get glimpses of. I remember Sam teaching me last year that the, the colors we see, that's the true colors of the trees. That beauty is supposed to be permanent, but because of the weather, right, the green stays in until it's so cold that the chlorophyll's drained out, and then the real beauty is revealed. I long for that to be permanent. Well, Paul saw that face to face, and then he writes about it so that we can know that too. And it's all over his letters, right, in 1 Corinthians 15, the new body that we're going to receive, flesh and blood, yet glorified. He writes about it in Romans I consider the sufferings, whether it be prison, whether it be sickness, whether it be difficulties in our lives, right? They're not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, prison. No, I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nothing in creation can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. That's what he's drawing upon as he's in prison. He meets God face to face and he remembers that. And he glimpsed new creation, which he then recorded for us so that we could know what awaits us. 
But that's not all. Paul is given insight into the mystery. Now, for you Westminster guys, I don't know how many of you are hearing David, uh, Dr. Garner saying musterion. This word, this word mystery, is one in, in our language that doesn't capture the whole meaning in the Greek, which is something that you can't solve on your own. This is not some Sherlock Holmes mystery where if you're clever enough, you can figure out what God's going to do. No, this is a mystery that God had hidden in such a way that not even the angels and the demons could understand what God was going to do. And this mystery was revealed to Paul and to us. And what was it? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's that God would save us by grace, by grace alone, that Jesus kept the law for him and for us, that Jesus paid the penalty for sins for him and for us, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and that anyone, Jew or Gentile, could come to God through Jesus. Paul's story was God was going to rescue Israel. And yet when God reveals the mystery of what he had been doing from the beginning, the story becomes so much bigger and so much more beautiful. People have the law, the Gentiles who don't, both can come to God because of Jesus. So the question for us is, do we see ourselves at the center of the same story that Paul sees himself in? What is our story? If somebody asks you, what's your story? Maybe it centers on your family, being a mom or dad, raising your kids, being a good husband or wife, being ambitious in your work. I was in Barnes & Noble this week, and I saw this book on the bestseller shelf, what you do is who you are. And if that doesn't capture so much of the spirit of our culture, right, we're defined. I even find myself being guilty of it, too. I met a, a couple on uh, Thursday night at trick-or-treating, and the first thing I said to the guy was, what do you do, you know? That's what, we, that's what we do. We define ourselves. Our stories are tied up with the work that we do, the excellence that we commit as a teacher or as a dentist or as a financial planner, right? Even me, I'm guilty of it, right? I see myself as a pastor instead of as a sinner saved by grace, a child of God, first and foremost. And our culture tells us stories that define us, and we don't even realize it. Jamie Smith says, says it like this in his book, On the Road. He says, our culture industries tap into our hunger for a narrative. Disney, HBO, Instagram, they're all in the myth-making business. But so many scripts invite us to become not characters, but models. People who are seen but have no story. Instead, we know only the clothes they wear, the facade they've assumed, which will be stripped and replaced in an instant. They're not selves, but machines for displaying products. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Right? If our culture denies the existence of God, our narrative becomes well, I, I'm trying to be happy. And how? With relationships, with products, with looks, with success, with legacy. And there are people trying to monetize all of that, right? We're always part of a story. Have you ever asked, what's the narrative that drives you? Because any story we're writing for ourselves or the culture is giving to us is vulnerable. And it's fractured. Our story becomes about these little things instead of this bigger story that we're a part of, right? 
Our, our story is significant because we're successful or because we have a house or because we look good or because we got a new car or because we have a family. That's our story. But all of these things can be taken away from us. And not all of us will actually attain all of those things. And so what do they do? If we have them, they promise anxiety over losing them. I've gotten this stuff now. What if it's taken away? And so we live with that worry. Or we live with depression over not ever actually achieving them. Or the worst, and some of you have shared this. Some of you have shared this. The dissatisfaction of actually getting what you wanted and not giving you what you thought it would. Probably more scary than not getting it at all. Is this, is this it? Is this all there is? But what about submitting to the story that God is telling? In the Odyssey, Odysseus is making his way home, and he stops in the Phraeans, he stops in Phraeacia, and this blind man starts to tell his story. He tells the story of, of the Trojan War. And it's the first time that Odysseus is hearing the story. And uh, the writer Gia Tolentino talks about this in her book, Trick Mirror. She says, having never heard his own life articulated by another person, Odysseus starts to weep. He's never wept before, and certainly not when he was actually hearing um, not when he was uh, hearing now what actually happened. It's only when he hears his story that he f becomes fully aware of his significance. The story told by another finally reveals his own identity. It's true of every person in relation to Scripture. You only know your true identity when you understand who you are in God's story. And if your narrative is a part of God's, it can't be taken away. It's invulnerable because your significance is defined by God and he's called you his own. And he knows what you need because he made you. And his infinite love and infinite beauty will meet your infinite needs. Have you ever thought about that? We have infinite needs. That's why all these things that we try to have fill our needs, they, they only work temporarily because they're not set on the one that's infinite, that could actually never plumb the depths of what our needs are. Paul experienced this. Bonhoeffer did. So what story defines us? Your own or the one the culture is giving to you or God? So Paul's revelation, it changes everything. The why of why he's sharing, why he has hope, is that he, he knows he's met with God and he knows who he is. And he knows this bigger story of the gospel and what that means for his life and where he's headed to a place where he's going to be with God, with a new body, rejoicing with God's people forever. And so what happens? Well, that brings us to the second point. It, it defines who we share with. Look at verses 8 and 9. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what's the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. It's a really remarkable thing about Paul's ministry. We've talked about this before. Who God sends him to, right? Here's this brilliant rabbi who knows the Old Testament so well. He's trained by one of the best, and Jesus sends him to the Gentiles, not to the Jews, right? 
And we don't know all of God's reasons, but he gives one here in the text. Grace was given. That's what he says. Grace was given to Paul. You see, Paul's ministry to the Gentiles is a vehicle to display God's grace. Because it would be so easy to attribute his knowledge and his skill and his stature in the Jewish community to his effectiveness among the Jews. But no, he's sent outside, completely dependent upon the work of God. Remember two weeks ago we talked about the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, centuries of hostility between two groups. Paul can't bridge that gap. God has to bridge it. And he does it through Paul's ministry as he administers his spirit. And just as God opened up Paul's eyes, he's opened up our eyes to share as well. The call to preach Christ is not unique to Paul. It's the call to all of us that know Jesus. It's not just for pastors, not just for elders. It's all over scripture. In your hearts, honor Christ as holy. Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So let me ask you, if somebody were to ask you to do something on a Sunday morning, and you tell them, oh, you're busy, could you tell them why? And then we're like, oh, why do you go to church? Could you give them a reason? Why do you gather with God's people on Sunday? Or if somebody is going through a trial and they ask you how you are able to get through your trials, could you share the hope that you have in Christ? We have so many reasons we don't share, right? We don't know the Bible well enough. We don't know, what if they ask us a question we can't answer? We make it about us, but it's never about us, right? We can share what God has done. He's the one that's revealed his son to us. Every discovery we've made about God, God has initiated with us. We didn't discover the gospel on our own, and he is the one that brings fruit from us sharing with others. The passage ends with Paul reminding us not just to share our story, but to share it boldly, with confidence. That brings us to our last point, how we share. Look at verses 12 and 13. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering, which is your glory. Paul is in prison because of his ministry to the Gentiles. But because he knows what's coming, and he knows what the preaching of the gospel has brought to the Gentiles, he knows it's worth it. He's at peace. He's in prison, and he's the one encouraging the people not in prison that they don't be discouraged. It's, it's remarkable. And he knows because he knows what the future is for them and for him. It's glorious. So he's not just sharing. He's bold about it. He's confident because he knows Christ is actually the only answer. He lives in anticipation of Christ. What do you live in anticipation of? Is it your next vacation? A promotion? A relationship? Or do you live in anticipation of Christ coming back? Because when God returning is primary in your life, life now actually becomes a lot better. C.S. Lewis understood this. Look at this quote. He says, Most of us find it difficult to want heaven at all, except insofar as heaven means meeting again our friends who've died. One reason for this difficulty is that we've not been trained 
Our whole education tends to fix our minds on this world. Another reason is that when the real want for heaven is present, we don't recognize it. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that can't be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in the world that offer to give it to us, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of traveling to some foreign country or first take up some subject that interests us. There are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can satisfy. And this is the key. I'm not speaking of what would be called unsuccessful marriages or disaster vacations or failed careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we were grasping at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in reality. Lewis says that there's three types of people in reaction to this reality that we live in. He says there's the fool. The fool is the one that keeps on going from thing to thing because they're not satisfied. And so they look for that marriage, they look for that job, that vacation. And what happens is when things are not what they expected them to be, they leave the relationship. They end the marriage. They go on a different vacation saying, well, it's Paris's fault that it was a bad vacation. They quit their jobs. And he says they'll live their whole life unsatisfied because they're looking for something that they're never going to find in the places that they're looking. And then he says there's the disillusioned man. And that's the person that just has lost all joy and energy in their life. They're just like, ah, that stuff is for young people. Love, ah. When you get older, you realize love is, ugh. You know, that there's no place worth going to other than my couch where I could watch what I want to watch. I'm not going to get on a plane. And they just become disillusioned. You know, they don't expect much from the world. And then he said, then there's the Christian, the one who knows that the desires we have in our hearts, the hopes that we have have been put there because they're going to be met when we're with God forever. And those desires point to someone. And so the question for us is, which one of those people are we? Are we the fool that keeps on thinking it's the job's fault or the person that we're dating or married to or, you know, it's the vacation that was failed? Or have we become just kind of bitter and cynical about the world? Or do we live with that hope knowing what is to come? The amazing thing that Lewis realized about this is that when we're only focused on the world, he said we lose both heaven and earth. And that's because we keep on flitting from thing to thing in the world, and it always dissatisfies us. We never actually get to God. But he said if your eyes are set on God, then everything we experience now gets its proper place. When we experience a blessing, we really experience the joy of that blessing, that gift. But we don't see it as the ultimate satisfaction. And when things are hard, we know that it's temporary. This is not what it's all cracked up, cracked up to be. And we can persist. So the question is, do we live with that eternal perspective driving the present? We too often make this our destination instead of the path to our destination. I was talking to a very wise theologian this week about this passage and my struggles with it. And he said, you know why we struggle? We struggle because we're not struggling. I think it's a good quote. 
So write that down. We struggle because we aren't struggling. That's from the great Paul Kim. And you know what he means? He's saying when life goes well, we struggle to yearn for God, right? Because things are good, and we start to think that these good things are what it's all about. But they're all temporary. All of it's temporary. And you know, even the noblest pursuits in this life, they ring hollow apart from Christ. I don't know how many of you have gotten to watch um, What's in Bill's Brain. It's a doc- three-part documentary on Netflix right now. It's awesome. And what it looks at is, you know, who, who is Bill Gates? What is he doing with his time now? And he's dedicated his life to solving three problems. Water problems in third world countries, that people are drinking water that has their own filth in it. Right? How can we get clean toilets, clean water? How can we deal with polio? Let me eradicate polio and let me deal with global warming. You know, little, little problems that we have. Little problems. And I watched this special, and I, and I thanked God for Bill Gates. Well, I'll be honest. I was a little jealous. I had found myself frustrated. This man can read 150 pages an hour with 90% retention rate. So I was, I was like, I hate Bill Gates. <laughs> I wish I could do that. But you also see, man, this is not Steve Jobs. This is not Steve Allen. This is a guy that had the same money and the same influence, and now he's using it to do really good work really precious work. And because of who he is, he has, everyone wants to figure out these problems with Bill Gates. There's money connected with it. There's prestige. He gets all of these people. Warren Buffett is giving him billions of dollars to solve these problems. And what's kind of sobering is that by the end of the documentary, you see that none of them are solved. The money and the cost to make these toilets is just so prohibitive to get them out into India, to get them out into these remote villages. It's just they haven't figured that out. Polio, even though they've figured out so much, the, the polio rates were up in Africa the year that, I mean, the last year, even despite all of the work that they've been doing. And then because of politics, because of our relationship with China right now, this idea that they have to clean um, power plants and deal with global warming was shut down. And so you have money, the elusiveness of our biology that we just can't fully grasp, and politics. And he might die, and these things might not ever be solved, right? But even if they were, just like Lazarus died again, they don't deal with the problem of sin. They don't deal with the problem of being separated from God. They're temporary solutions. Only one can give us what we need, what we want what we were made for. And so we just end with asking you, what are your goals? What are your ambitions? And what are behind them? To get attention, to win, to know you matter, to be happy. Jesus fulfilled every goal set by God. He obeyed the law. He sought his Father in prayer. He never sinned. And when he was on the cross, his Father turned his face away. He ignored Jesus' pleas so that when you and I want to be seen, when we want to know that we matter, when we want our Father's attention, we can know that we have it, undivided, love. And we don't have to do anything to get our Father's attention because of Christ. What's the story you're in right now? What's your narrative? Is it one that you're writing? 
Is it one that the culture has given to you, or is it one that's at the center of the greatest story ever told, where before the foundation of the world, God chose you, chose you for himself. And when you were running away from him, when you hated him, he sent his son on a rescue mission to save you because he loved you. He would not abandon you to sin and death. If we grasp that, we'll be like, Paul, what, what is there... What other thing should we be more bold about sharing, right? What other thing in our life would be more important to pursue and make known than this, this awesome God who's rescued us?